So when I join group practice, my panic becomes worse. So I stay alone in my room and really welcome my panic, stay in awareness. After a few days later, me and my panic become very good friends. I'm, I'm feeling kind of like exciting when the panic comes. The symptom is there. So you know, from here, heart beat jumps faster, boom, 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 and then tight here, get dizzy, sweating. But it doesn't bother me. Normally, the, when the before panic is almost going to start, I feel panic or panic. <laughs> now is it coming again? What should I do? Meditate. Breathing. It doesn't work. You know. Now, hello, okay. Come, 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 welcome. Tired and then, oh, interesting. Recently, as a way of trying to strengthen my own practice, I've been making an effort to read more books about meditation and about mindfulness. And so I took out of my library uh, this book. It's called In Love with the World by Yonge Minger Rinpoche. Yonge Minger Rinpoche is a very well-known, uh, popular Buddhist Tibetan monk. Uh, he's written like a best-selling book. Uh, I know of him and his very kind and peaceful demeanor from uh, numerous YouTube videos. I've seen him. Uh, he's a YouTube channel. He's lectured all over the world, and I was very curious to see what is this latest book, what, what can I learn from it? But I went in really um, not, knowing, not knowing what to expect. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just read a, a few sentences from the beginning of the book to give you a sense of, uh, of how this thing starts. I finished writing the letter. It was past 10 o'clock on a hot night in Bodhgaya in north central India, and right now no one else knew. I placed the letter on a low wooden table in front of the chair that I, that I often sat on. It would be discovered sometime the following afternoon. There was nothing left to do. I turned off the lights and pushed back the curtain. Outside it was pitch black with no sign of activity, just as I had anticipated. <laughs> we'll stop there. It's hard for me to stop there because it actually is like so gripping, right? I mean, this book starts by throwing us into a clandestine middle-of-the-night escape. Yonge Mingo Rinpoche opens this book describing the experience of running away from his monastery where he is the abbot. And he is running away from his monastery because he wants to go on this multi-year retreat, uh, a retreat where he is going to shed his identity and shed his ego and no longer be Yonge Mingo Rinpoche, the abbot monk, teacher of millions, and instead basically become a homeless wanderer, a wandering yogi. And it's, it reads, like I said, like an adventure tale in the beginning. Uh, he talks in great detail proudly about how he secured an extra key to the gate and how he had to oil all the hinges and time his movements with the passing of the guards uh, and how he managed to order himself a taxi. And it's exciting. Um, he eventually jumps over a fence, throws his backpack, climbs over a fence, and now he's waiting for his taxi. Uh, and his taxi doesn't show up. So his taxi eventually does show up, shows up 30 minutes late. But throughout this whole episode and throughout the whole book, 
what Yonge Mingo Rinpoche is constantly doing is taking his internal temperature. He's constantly documenting precisely how he's feeling. He documents the anxiety that he feels when his taxi doesn't show up. Is someone going to see him? He has to sort of hide. Um, and then he's in the taxi. He's handling money for the first time. And the book sort of weaves together different voices, different perspectives. Of course, one of the central voices is Yonge Mingo Rinpoche on this odyssey, on this journey, leaving from the monastery to the taxi to a train station and slowly acclimating himself, sort of like someone, uh, an image comes to mind of someone uh, entering a very freezing cold pool or, or body of water, slowly, step by step, stepping into the water and adjusting. Um, and, and one of the things that he talks about is how surprised he was by how hard the adjustment was. It wasn't instantaneous. He uh, describes in great detail what it's like feeling all the eyes on him in the train station because uh, he's sort of circling and, and, and inhabiting a place uh, filled with homeless people, but he doesn't look homeless because he looks uh, dressed. How hard it was for him to shed his robes. The other voices um, that are sort of mixed in here uh, is the voice of the teachings, of you know Buddhist teachings. He, he makes an effort, the author makes an effort um, to explore what are the tools that Mingur Rinpoche is using and how are they applicable um, in, to other people in similar, parallel, difficult situations. He also gives very specific meditation advice, very specific meditations. Um, meditations for pain, meditations on dying, meditations on sleep, um, which, which are useful to anyone uh, who's interested in developing or, or expanding a kind of meditation practice. It's a struggle to get into the freezing water. It takes time. Rinpoche says he's not going to force himself. He's going to be patient with himself. But ultimately, as you'd expect, uh, the, the, the project starts off as a, a success. You know, it's hard for him to be on this train, the lowest, the most inexpensive seating on the train, surrounded by people with overflowing toilets and people stepping on him. And it's hard, but as, as you'd expect, as a master meditator, he's able to find his mindfulness. He's able to do a body scan. Um, he describes uh, the the um, sound of the train horn that that startles him out of his meditation, and he's able to do a certain sound meditation, which um, relaxes him and, and brings him in touch with the fact that sound is just sound. When Rinpoche talks about what motivated this project, he goes into depth about his childhood and how he grew up with panic attacks. And he describes uh, in great detail how, how terrible those are. And anyone who's had panic attacks or knows someone who's had panic attacks knows how incredibly frightening and debilitating and overwhelming that experience is. And he, he talks about uh, how over time it was not easy and it took many, many years, but he was able to use meditation to sort of overcome uh, his panic attacks and, and use his panic as an object of meditation. And he describes how when he was 14, he had like the worst panic attack uh, he ever had, and also the last one he ever had, and through meditation he was able to to overcome it. And he felt ever since then he can overcome anything. And part of the motivation for going on this sort of this wild, risky um, retreat, uh, running away from his abbot, uh, running away from his monastery, was to test this hypothesis that he could really overcome anything. Throughout the journey, Rinpoche meets certain people. He has an encounter with um, an Indian family at a railway station, um, which is very warm and very nice. Uh, he, one interesting encounter is he's at um, a stupa, he's at uh, 
uh, an important Buddhist um, monument, and uh, an Asian man comes up to him, uh, sees him meditating, and uh, asks him some questions. He says that he is a very successful business person who has traveled to India to, to meditate, and he's really finding it very hard to meditate. And, and of course, uh, Rinpoche is able to give him great advice for how to meditate with an active mind. So again, this book is filled with these really interesting um, encounters and, and, and practical advice for people. But then uh, things, things get interesting. I, of course, am wondering, where, you know, where is this going? You know, what's going to happen here? Uh, because, like, you know, like I'm, let's say, halfway through the book, and we're only at, like, I don't know, day, you know, week two or something in his journey. So, so, so what's the timeline here? Like, like is this book going to end? Because I, I know that uh, his, his retreat is, like, uh, three and a half years or something. So, so what, is, what is going on? Where is, this, where is the story going? Finally, he's ready to take the plunge and, and fully immerse himself in this new world. He's shed his robes, he's shed his identity, and he's inhabiting the mind of this wandering yogi, this, this person who is homeless. And for the first time, he has to beg for food. And he describes how hard it is. He can't even get the words out. And he shows up at the shopkeeper and, and he struggles to just utter something to explain that he's begging. And the shopkeeper says, come back later. And he comes back later. And he eats the food, and, which is delicious, he says. Delicious food. And shortly afterwards, the next day, he is sick. And he's throwing up. And he can't control his bowel movements. And he says, this is not so uncommon in India. You know, because of the water and because of the food that anyone, you know, this is very normal. He's used to this, so to speak. Uh, these things happen. And he's, he's living uh, on the street, and things get worse and worse. And, and day after day goes by, and he can't eat anything. And day after day goes by, um, and he could barely keep down water. And he, he goes into detail um, with pain meditation, how he uh, meditates you know, through these experiences to um, be able to endure them, basically. But eventually, it dawns on him that he is dying at the cremation stupa. And we get this long section, which is really unlike anything I've read, to be honest. This long, long section of the book, which is play by play, minute by minute, thought by thought, the experience of Yonge Mingo Rinpoche dying. Quote, Day five of my illness, still no food, outside intense heat from the sun, inside burning heat from the fever. I lay slumped against the wall, the water bottles empty. I barely had enough strength to get to the bushes. I had wanted to wrap myself in mist like Milarepa had. Now the mist had enveloped me. Now the mist that enveloped me was the damp dread of dying alone in Kushinagar by the cremation stupa. Do I know, like my father did, that awareness does not die? Is my understanding reliable enough to count on? Will I recognize my true mind at the moment of death, or get stunned by the light and pass out? If I continue to practice, what could go wrong? But I have only practiced within this body. My father explained to me that as long as we remain in our bodies, even the most intense experiences of luminous emptiness will be shaded, however slightly, by the conceptual mind. Skipping a bit of this monologue, he says, 
And then the fear would return, seeping into every thought, directing every image, foretelling my fate. There was no longer any confusion about my condition. I was dying. Fluctuating between fear and confidence, images of my mother and other family members, friends and students streamed before me, jumbled and disordered like a shredded photo album. Bodhgaya and Nagi Gompa and Nubri with its summer flowers and my grandmother and dead father and my beloved masters. I wanted these people with me now to guide me and comfort me. I wanted to hold them, to cry out, please stay with me. But they drifted like ghosts. Okay, what happens next, I'm not going to read it, is like this incredible moment. He realizes that he actually knows the phone numbers of two different monasteries. And he realizes that he could just ask someone to place a phone call to one of these two monasteries and they'll immediately send out a rescue mission and rescue him. And he doesn't know what to do. Should he make this effort to save his life? And he's torn, torn with indecision. I'm skipping a bunch of pages here. Three pages later, quote, a ball of iron stuck in my throat, blocking my breath, strangling any capacity for making a decision. Back and forth I went. This indecision cannot be sustained. I must choose one direction. Either one will be better than this. Eventually he decides to accept whatever happens to him. So he doesn't, he decides not to make the call, basically. He continues, skipping a bit. Making the decision to remain in Kushinagar settled my mind, but not my stomach. I continued to squat in the bushes. By now, every movement confirmed that my body was slipping further toward its irreversible cessation. This brought with it a renewed determination to work with the instructions for the bardo of dying. The day before, a genuine concern had given rise to these same contemplations, but I had not yet abandoned a whisper that told me everything will be okay. Now these assurances were nowhere to be found. Skipping. Living, dying, two concepts equally distant from this moment. This is who and where I am right now. This being just doing this activity in this body, making these aspirations, nothing more, nothing less, just trying to, to fully inhabit the infinite universe of each moment. And so, of course, that's an example of the practice that he's trying to bring to this moment of extremity, this moment of disaster, this moment of crisis, as a way of centering himself. Skipping a bunch of pages, and now we get really the step-by-step dissolution, the, the, the precise physiological experiential process. My extremities turned cold. It was very hot outside, so I knew that this was caused by losing body heat. The fire element was leaving. As my body became colder, I could not make out distinct forms and saw only reddish flashes before my eyes. Skipping. Each inhalation expanded beyond my lungs, transforming matter into air, making the body lighter, more resilient. I could no longer see or hear. The container had cracked. With the dissolution of air into space, my body became completely paralyzed. I could not move. Internal physical movement slowed to bare functioning, but my consciousness remained unchanged. Skipping some more. Suddenly, boom, <clears throat> awareness and emptiness became one, indivisible, just as it always is. But the recognition had never been this complete before. The last shred of cohesion slipped away. The entire universe opened up and became totally unified with consciousness. No conceptual mind. I was no longer within the universe. The universe was within me. No me separate from the universe. No direction. No within or without. 
no perception or non-perception, no self or non-self, no living, no dying. The internal movements of the organs and senses slowed way down to minimal functioning. I still understood what was going on, but not through commentary or voice or image. That type of cognition no longer presented itself. The clarity and luminosity of awareness beyond concepts, beyond fixed mind, became the sole vehicle of knowing. Skipping a bit. As a drop of water placed in the ocean becomes indistinct, boundless, unrecognizable, and yet still exists, so my mind merged with space. It was no longer a matter of me seeing trees as I had become trees. Me and trees were one. Trees were not the object of awareness. They manifested awareness. Stars were not the object of appreciation, but appreciation itself. No separate me loved the world. The world was love. My perfect home, vast and intimate. Every particle was alive with love, fluid flowing without barriers. I was an alive particle. No interpretive mind. Clarity beyond ideas. And he goes on and on. And eventually... He wakes up in a hospital and we get a very uh, sort of comedic moment because he describes what he sees and the reader knows that it's a hospital because it looks like a hospital and the reader also knows that Yonge Mingo Rinpoche survives <laughs> because he wrote a book about it. But uh, our narrator Yonge Mingo Rinpoche doesn't know that he's in a hospital. He thinks that he's in one of the bardos, which are these like transitional places um, in the cycle of samsara, life and death. And so he thinks he's like in a kind of heaven, basically, um, sort of in, in the Buddhist uh, conception of what that would be. After, after a bunch of pages where he describes the hospital and, and his thought process and how he's understanding his current predicament in the cycle of samsara, he says, now with my eyes open and knowing that I was in a hospital, I still thought that I was in paradise. It cannot be a misfortune not to have died when I had woken up in paradise. I dozed on and off with knowing awareness, with memory and reflection. I felt newly awakened, but not ready to talk. If a nurse walked too near, I closed my eyes. This seemed like a nice place to rest, a pleasure garden of comfort. But something started to suggest that I should get on with my journey if I was in the bardo of becoming and could direct this part of the dream. I wondered where I would go, what I would become. Right, so basically what he's saying is he's imagining where he's going to go in the next life, right, because he thinks that he's in between lives. So he says, I would look for the realm where I could continue to practice, the human realm. I would look for parents who want to do good in this world, who respect Dharma, who are kind and caring, who would encourage and guide my spiritual path. Actually, I would seek a family like the one I had. In the midst of this reverie, I looked up and saw a familiar figure. The Asian man from the Parinirvana Stupa walked through the door of the ward. I shut my eyes. And so that's a very dramatic moment. It's a very comedic moment almost because as he's meditating, reflecting on what he wants to do in the next life, uh, this person who he'd met earlier, the person who asked him for guidance on his meditation, uh, walks in through the door. He's like, oh, <laughs> now I understand. So, of course, he he's, uh, was rescued. He was rescued by this man that he had previously met and gave advice. And, and with that, the book basically ends. Uh, he ends up leaving the hospital feeling amazing and ready to 
go forward with his retreat, which he ends up doing for um, about three and a half years, I think. And so, in conclusion, there, there's sort of two things that are true. I, I was surprised, and maybe Yonggi Ming, maybe Rinpoche was also a little bit surprised, I don't know, by how human and how relatable his experience is. I mean, he felt sort of the, the swells of emotions. You know, he, he cries at moments um, over his fate, and, and he experiences self-consciousness when people, the eyes are upon him. And so this, this yogi who dedicated his whole life uh, to practice is still human in every you know, recognizable way. But of course, we also get the very strong sense that his practice, the practice of meditation, is a sustaining kind of practice. And it's a very powerful technique and tool for navigating these emotions. The analogy that Rinpoche loves to use in this book, the mind is like an ocean with waves or a sky with clouds. Awareness is this expanse of space. And in that expanse, we get strong emotions, aversion, fear, anxiety. It could be anger, all sorts of things. And these are like the waves of the ocean or the clouds in the sky, the storms in the sky. And it's human for them to be there. Everyone experiences them. But the practice of meditation is about tapping in, identifying with the expanse, identifying with the openness, capacious awareness, so that you see the waves, but you're not in the waves. 